Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston Schrader. And I'm Jason Carr. Jason, who do we interview today and what did we talk about? So today we had the honor to interview Jamie Ellis, who a lot of people might know as the current columnist for the uh, American Bee Journal for the question and answer column, The Classroom. He's also a professor at the University of Florida and has spent his career researching honeybees. And he's been passionate about bees since he was a, a child. He started, I think he mentioned he started as a beekeeper when he was 12 years old. Wow, that's a long time. I know you've been raising bees for a long time as well, Jason. In fact, for the listeners, uh, Jason got me into raising bees this year. So I started with my first hive this year, and hopefully we get to reap some of the uh, honey from that. Um, But in our discussion today, we learned a lot about uh, the other um, ways that bees impact our food economy and, and how they pollinate so many different foods or crops that turn into food that we eat. Uh, so it's a, we had a great discussion. Yeah, they obviously have a huge impact on a lot of things. And so without further ado, we present you our interview with Jamie, where he can describe it far better than we can. Hi, Jamie. Thanks for joining the podcast today. To start things off, would you give us uh, some of your background, history, uh, education, what your current role and position is? Yeah, I'd be more than happy to. So um, I'm, I'm one of those bee academics who actually got into bee academics because I was a beekeeper first. So I've been keeping bees since I was 12 years old. I'm from a, a very rural area in Georgia and I talked my parents into getting me some bee colonies when I was 12 and I kept my bees on my grandfather's dairy farm. And and from there, you know, I did a lot of the standard things that you would expect, you know, young people in rural areas to do. I, I was involved in the 4-H club and my project was, of course, with honeybees. I was involved with science fair projects. And of course, my projects were all on honeybees. And so through all of that, I managed to meet the professor at the University of Georgia who, who essentially has the job at University of Georgia that I have at University of Florida. And, and all four of my undergraduate years at the University of Georgia, I spent working as a research technician in his laboratory on honeybees. So his name is Keith Delaplane. And, and, and that just kind of further reinforced my desire to work with honeybees professionally, kind of from the academic standpoint. So I did my undergrad at University of Georgia in biology. I went overseas to do my PhD at Rhodes University in South Africa. And I know that may, may sound like wow. a, a plot twist for you, but the principal reason for that was because right about the time I was graduating, Uh, University of Georgia, small high beetles had just been found in the States. And, you know, they were looking for people to do research on beetles. And in my case, I went essentially over to South Africa to study small high beetles in their native range. So I did that and had a great time for three years there and came back to the States and did a postdoc at University of Georgia. And after that, I landed a, a, a faculty position here in the entomology and nematology department at the University of Florida. So we're at, this is where I've been the past 14 years, and here I manage the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory. So it's been a really fun ride for me to kind of arrive at this point. Nice. I used to yeah. live in Gainesville, Georgia, so I wasn't too far away. Yeah, my brother lived in Gainesville, Georgia, so I'm, I'm familiar with that oh, area as well. <laughs> nice. It's obviously something you've been passionate about for a long time, Jamie. It's, it's kind of interesting because it seems like a lot of times when we talk to people, just in general conversation or even interview people for the podcast, they didn't necessarily end up where they thought they would be, you know, at this point in their career, kind of sure. 
we've all taken some twists and turns. So it's, it's interesting to talk to somebody who had, you know, kind of a laser focus and stuck with it for many well, years. Well, what I found, I know this kind of sounds cliche and corny, but when I was in high school, my science teacher invested very heavily in me. And so I'd already independently developed a love for bees, but, but she really, uh, she just cultivated my love for science. And I usually tell people I could have studied just about anything and been happy. I just happened to marry the two things I like bees and science. And so when I realized that that's what I wanted to do, I was pretty focused on getting that done. And I'm very fortunate now to work at the University of Florida. Our, our, our entomology department is, is actually ranked number one in the world at, at the moment. Uh, so it's, it's a fantastic place to do work. It's really cool that I landed here and I'm excited. That's an amazing story. And Preston and I share a lot of your passion for the bees and, you know, okay. as both, both keep some bees and we both enjoy it. And I think that there's a lot of knowledge out there, increasing awareness about how important pollinators are. But when we talk specifically about honeybees and other pollinators, but, you know, from a honeybee perspective, how important are they to agriculture as a whole? So we're in the middle of the Midwest here. We have a lot of corn and soybeans, you know, obviously when we have orchards and vegetable crops and things like that, bees are important. But overall, how important are bees and other pollinators to agriculture? Yeah, so that's a great question. And, and I'm going to answer it with a short answer, and then I'm going to give you a little bit of a story. So the short answer is they're incredibly important, right? So there, there are estimates out there that honeybees are responsible for you know, a good chunk of the food that we eat. I've seen the estimates as high as 30%. I, I don't know how accurate that is, but I usually tell people around 20% that the contribution of honeybees alone to food supply, that doesn't factor in the other bees and the other pollinators. And so this is the way that I typically explain it. You, you, you mentioned that you're based in the Midwest. Of course, there's a lot of corn and soybean, just like what you said. If you look at a map of where the pollinator dependent crops are grown, it's usually uh, highlights uh, these pollinator dependent crops around the perimeter of the United States. So the center of our country is the bread basket, the grains and all of this stuff. These, these things are wind pollinated, so don't need insects. But a lot of these other things that really truly need pollinators, uh, for example, almonds, apples, watermelons, uh, cantaloupes, all of these things, these things tend to be grown around the perimeter of the country and they're incredibly relied on pollinators. So here's, here's the little brief story about that. When I was a kid and I started keeping bees, I just kept them because I was fascinated with them. And I knew a lot about the honey production. I produced honey, that was exciting. But only a small, tiny bit of what I did was provide pollination services. There was a nearby grower of blueberries who just wanted a couple of colonies in his backyard to pollinate his blueberries. And that was my introduction. So, so even me at the time, I didn't appreciate how important bees are. Now, of course, as a bee scientist, I've come to grow, to grow a great appreciation for what these things do for us through their pollination efforts. And as a result, you know, you guys are beekeepers, you know this. There, there's a huge segment of our industry uh, where, where beekeepers will move their bees around the United States, put their bees on these crops that need pollination, and they'll actually be paid a fee for that service while their bees are out there pollinating crops. So blueberries, you know, watermelons, cantaloupes, squashes, cucumbers, almonds, all of these things are things that need honeybees and other bees. And as a result, there's this just massive segment of our industry that, that essentially provides these pollination services. And we get fruits, vegetables, nuts, and berries out of these efforts. So they're incredibly important for humans. 
interesting. When I think of before I started raising honeybees, obviously I thought of the honey production. I don't know if you, do you happen to have any stats on the size of the honey industry, maybe in comparison to the, the pollinator side of things? Are they well, on par or is there? Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you ask that question. And the reason I think it's interesting, of course, if you work in ag for any length of time, you know, there's a branch of the federal government that runs statistics for the, the agriculture sectors across the U.S. That's NAS, the National Agriculture Statistics Service. And for honeybees, they keep up with the number of honey producing colonies, the amount of honey produced uh, by state and the value of that. And if you look at honey production across the U.S., it's usually valued every year somewhere in the neighborhood of about a third of a billion dollars. So somewhere around $300 million. In Florida, I think it's about uh, 20 to $25 million every year. But NAS doesn't keep stats related to pollination. And it's funny because the value of pollination to the beekeepers, in other words, what they make from renting out their colonies, likely pales in comparison to the value received on, from the growers. You know, the growers are receiving tremendous value because they get more and better fruits, vegetables, nuts, and berries. So I've never seen really good statistics related to the value of, poll of the pollination business to beekeepers. In 2000, there was an estimate that the value of pollination to ag in the U.S. was around uh, 15 or $20 billion, I believe. But, but my guess is, is that's grossly underestimated. And like I said, I, I really have no concept of how valuable the pollination industry is to the beekeepers who are providing those pollination services. And I would argue that it's likely more significant than honey, though I've not seen data uh, on that topic. It's one of those areas of research needs that we have at the moment. You know, and, and, and as we mentioned before, us coming from a Midwestern perspective, we don't think of bees as being important to corn and soybeans, um, but there are a significant amount of uh, you know, where there's managed honeybee colonies, they do a significant amount of pollination in soybean fields and do give some sort of benefit. Now, I've seen, I've seen some research, I think this came out of South America, and you've, you've probably seen the same thing, where they tried to quantify how much benefit there was from honeybees pollinating a soybean field. And I think the number they came up with was somewhere around 18%, which okay. that sounds fairly high to me, just given the fact that I don't know that we see that many bees in the field to give that kind of benefit. But there is some sort of benefit there. So I, I think it's important for growers to realize that beekeepers do provide some value even in this area as far as pollination, even in crops that they may not traditionally think of as being pollinated by bees. Yeah, it's funny you bring up soybeans. In Florida, the, the similar crop for us would be citrus. You know, citrus does not necessarily need uh, pollinators. It's, it's pretty good at, at wind pollination and, and other. So, um, but there is some evidence that some citrus varieties do in fact benefit just slightly, kind of what you mentioned for soybeans. They benefit slightly from having honeybees present on the property. So even in those crops, just like soybeans, just like citrus, where you know, generally speaking, they're not so pollinator dependent, they can still benefit. But there are examples, like example I always use is blueberries. We've done some research here where in the absence of honeybees on, on these uh, blueberry uh, orchards, what you'd get is somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 20% fruit set. So if you get 10 blooms, you're going to get one to two berries. But in the presence of honeybees, you get 60 to 80% fruit set. So now you get six to eight berries. So depending on how you do the math, I mean, that's 
you know, a, a huge um, fold increase in the amount of berries produced just by adding honeybees. And the, and the analogy I always give is for blueberries, adding water, fertilizer, and pest control on a particular year will not, will not give you the same yield that adding pollinators will. So honeybees are really important input in blueberries. And you see this for a lot of other crops as well. So yeah, the, the way that I usually teach this, guys, if you can kind of use your imagination here. I usually teach it using the old McDonald's um, cheeseburger. And if you, if you move from north to south on a McDonald's cheeseburger, you get bun, onions, mustard, ketchup, pickles, cheese, meat, and bun. If you were to snatch the, the bees away, you'd have the bun because it's produced by a grain crop that's wind pollinated, but you wouldn't have the ketchup and mustard because that comes from to tomatoes and mustard, both of which need pollination by bees. You wouldn't have the onions because onions are grown from seeds that ultimately had to be pollinated by bees. You wouldn't have the pickle because pickles are cucumbers that needed bees. And even the beef and the cheese would suffer because honeybees are important pollinators of cattle fodder crops such as alfalfa and clover. So you basically have bun, a little bit of cheese, a little bit of meat, and bun. And that's kind of a good way to think about what honeybees and other pollinators do for us. I don't want to disparage McDonald's, but that doesn't sound too appetizing to me. <laughs> <laughs> so when we talk about beekeeping, then, you know, there's a lot of press out there um, when we talk about bees. And there's an impression out there, I think, in the general public that the amount of honeybee colonies is declining. Uh, what is what are the what are the numbers bear out on that? Are are we losing hives? Are we gaining hives? You know, where do we stand from a historical perspective? So, so the answer is yes to both of those questions. Are we losing hives? Are we gaining hives? The, the reason people are confused is because the message is confusing. And so, this is the best way to think about it. If you look at the yearly loss rates, we're averaging, and again, I'm just going to guesstimate based on all the data I've seen around 40% loss rates yearly. But what the public's not being told is that those are gross losses and not net losses. So if I have a hundred colonies, I'm going to lose 40, right? That's the average yearly gross loss rate. But if you actually look at the net change in numbers of colonies, we've actually averaged a net increase of just over 1% the last 14 or 15 years. So that means if I have 100 colonies, I'm going to finish the year with 101. So somehow wow. I've gained a colony, even though I lost 40. So how does that happen? Well, it happens because if I have 100, I lose my 40%. That's my gross loss rate, and I've got 60. Now with these 60, I do something to recover 41 colonies. And what I do is I split those colonies or I purchase new colonies. But at the end of the day, I've recovered 41 and now I have 101. So basically, I had a gross loss rate of 40%, but a net increase of 1%. So what's being reported in the press are these staggering gross loss rates, but they don't use the word gross. If you go back to 2006, when, when loss rates, elevated loss rates were reported, we had around two and a half million colonies. If we've lost 40% of our colonies every year since 2006, we'd have fewer than 50,000 colonies left in the United States. Yet now we're at 2.7 or 2.8 million colonies. And, and the way that those both work 
is that we have these gross loss rates that happen every year, but we have these net changes that are actually up. So I know what the next question is, is how is this possible? Well, it's, it's very simple. When you, people talk about B losses, they instantly start talking about stressors, mites, nutrition, et cetera. It's these stressors that are driving the gross losses. My, I lose 40 of my 100 colonies because something's going to happen to cause stress in those 40. But, it's, but I can recover those losses because what drives the net change is economics. Right now, pollination prices and honey prices, while not amazing, are reasonable enough to where beekeepers will invest that into the recovery of those colonies so that they end up with slightly more than they started with. So you basically have two things at play here. Economics is what drives the net number of colonies. Stressors are what drive the gross loss rate. And right now, beekeepers are kind of, uh, I usually paint the picture, they're the ones taking it on the chin. If, if they didn't have to recover 40% of their losses yearly, it would be a much more profitable and, and better business for them. But the reason that we, the consumer, have been shielded from all of these apocalyptic things that people have been talking about in the press is because we've not actually been net losing bees. We've been net gaining bees because of the hard work of our amazing beekeepers around the country who are doing their best to recover these losses and ensure a stable pollination force to provide that food supply for us. We don't always get a nuanced reporting of things, I guess, but losing 40% of the bees probably grabs a lot more attention than saying, oh, we're pretty much holding steady or gaining about 1%. Sure, sure. But it does underscore, you know, the fact that beekeepers are losing 40% of their commodity every year. Almost every time I'm in beekeeping circles, and I've said it many times before, you know, what ag commodity can lose 40% every year and the federal government or the state governments not do something to address? And, and the answer is beekeeping, right? You know, so if, if, if beekeepers didn't have to return, we'd have more beekeepers, we'd have more bee colonies, et cetera. But it's, it's a tricky business. So I don't, I'm certainly not at all trying to under, uh, underemphasize the losses. What I'm trying to do is paint the beekeepers as heroes, kind of shielding the public from what these loss rates would really mean if we truly had net losses rather than gross losses. What do you attribute the, what's the motivation behind this reporting of gross losses versus net? Is there, is it just that sort of new cells or do you attribute it to something else? Honestly, I think it's because the gross loss rate is shocking and people. So I, I think there's a long answer in it, but, but the short answer is, is I think that people aren't looking at both sets of data simultaneously. And I think this 40% loss rate is very shocking. It is truly very shocking, right? And the key is, is this 40% loss rate does seem to be more than what the industry has experienced in the past. The problem is, is we don't have good records from 15 years ago and backwards. So essentially, when you, the 40% loss rate is, is basically an opinion survey from beekeepers. Beekeepers, how many colonies did you start the year with? 100. Well, how many colonies did you have in the middle of the year? 60. Well, I lost, then, then you lost 40%. And then they will follow up and ask, well, what do you consider the loss rate, the normal loss rate to be? And that is always between 50 and 20%. So when you hear the words elevated loss rates, it's not elevated over what we've shown with data from 15 years ago. It's elevated over what we think is normal. And what we think is normal is 15 to 20% losses. Therefore, 40% is twice what's normal. Therefore, it's really bad, right? right? But what I argue is that we just don't really know what was normal. 
it's in, in my opinion, 20 to 30% could be normal. I don't suspect that it is, but it, you know, that's what some people have suggested. So I don't, I, I think this 40% loss rate, I, I don't think anyone's trying to pull, you know, the, the, you know, fleece someone, pull the wool over someone's eyes. I think it's just an alarming, staggering number when viewed alone. And what, what I would argue is that in the past 15 years, it's been viewed alone. Does that right, make sense? Right. Makes yeah. perfect sense. Um, so beef farmers do face challenges. Um, I was wondering if you could just explain for the listeners, they've probably never heard of things like the Vro, Mike. Could you sure. describe some of those challenges? Yeah, I, I would, would love to. So essentially these same surveys that are used to ask beekeepers, what are you losing? What do you consider normal, et cetera? These same surveys include questions like, what do you think uh, are, are the most significant contributors to your losses? And every year when taken across all three levels of beekeepers, and those three levels are hobbyist beekeepers who keep one to 50 colonies, sideline beekeepers who keep 51 to about 200, depending on who you ask, and commercial beekeepers who keep 201 to more colonies. When you average all the data together, the beekeepers say in no particular order, here are their five most significant colony stressors. Bad weather, the colonies are weak in fall, varroa, nutrition, and queen quality. Very quickly, I usually take two of them off the table. Weak in fall means the colony's weak heading into fall. That is not a stressor to me. That is the result of stressors. So I take that off the table because I, I think it's not something worth discussing. The second one I usually take off the table is bad weather. If you live in California, you have bad weather. If you live in New York, you have bad weather. If you live in Florida, you have bad weather. In my lab, I cannot create a plastic strip that you can hang in your colony and control bad weather. We are all at the mercy of the weather where we live. Droughts, uh, too much rain, too cold, too hot, etc. So while it is certainly a significant stressor of bee colonies, at the moment it's hard to address it. So that basically leaves three key things that the beekeepers themselves say are big issues, management related issues, varroa, nutrition, and queen. So let's talk about those briefly. Varroa is an ectoparasitic mite, much like a tick for bees that gets on the outside of the bee body, pierces the bee body, and feeds on honeybee fat bodies, this tissue that's under the shell of the bee. And furthermore, these varroa, these mites, they will transmit pathogens, especially viruses, to the bees. And, and these viruses with varroa are essentially a death knell for bees. The varroa by themselves are just an annoyance. The viruses by themselves are just an annoyance. But when you put varroa and the viruses together, honeybees die. In fact, many people consider these mites to be the principal killer of honeybees on planet Earth. Then there's nutritional stress that the beekeepers report. Honeybees derive nutrition from two sources. The first of those is nectar, which is the sugar water from flowers that they convert to honey. Honey is essentially bee fuel. It moves the bee. The other thing they collect, which benefits us, is the pollen. And so pollen provides honeybee po uh, protein, vitamin, minerals, and nutrients. So bees collect pollen to consume, not to pollinate crops because they like us. So there's nutritional stresses associated with feeding on monocultures that, that, that might play a role. You know, if you're nutritionally stressed, then you are susceptible to all these other problems as well. So nutrition plays a key role in honeybee health. And then queen quality. Every, every colony is headed 
by one queen. And just like there's breeding in cattle and breeding in poultry and breeding in corn and breeding in you know, soybeans, there's breeding in bees. And so some people say that a lot of our bee stocks just aren't up to par. Now, there's a lot of other stressors that play key potential roles in honeybees, you know, um, losses. You've got nosema, other pathogens, viruses, bacteria, fungal diseases. You've got other pests. You've got management-related issues. And, of course, people like to point, on, uh, point out pesticides. But a lot of these are things that I would consider personally secondary stressors that play, you know, kind of secondary roles in bee losses. I mean, the beekeepers themselves in the survey say nutrition, queens, and varroa are our big issues tied to weather. So, there's, there's a lot of these kind of multifactorial, if you, if you have asked a bee scientist what's killing bees, they're going to say, well, it's this multifactorial thing. There's lots of stressors at play, you know, ultimately coming together to, to contribute to bee losses. Yeah, that's a lot of information there. And I want to follow up on a couple of comments you made. Sure. Um, one is you mentioned that varroa feed on the fat bodies of the bees. And I think that you maybe co-authored a paper that came out last year that kind of established that, where in the past, uh, the thinking had been that the, the varroa feed on the hemolymph or the, the blood of the bees, correct? Sure, that's right. Just just a very brief aside there for a long time, people, like you said, believe that varroa feed on bee hemolymph or blood. But I did co-author a paper with some colleagues from the USDA, University of Maryland, et cetera. Um, and, and collectively, we found that, that, that varroa feed on fat bodies. And this, it's, it's a weird, fat body is a weird tissue. You won't find it really in the bee anatomy and dissection books. You find the standard organs. But fat bodies are kind of all over the bee, and they, they have a number of functions in bees. You know, a lot of it's related to nutrition handling, detoxification of compounds, just a lot of functions. And so these varroa are taxing those fat, fat bodies and we might have these kind of downstream stress manifestations that look like other things, you know, because Varroa are feeding on a tissue that's important to addressing those other things. So yeah, that was a very key finding last year that, that we were able to publish. So when I saw that, I, you know, in my mind, I thought, well, this is a, this is a pretty big breakthrough. Does it, does it have any implications for the battle against Varroa or for managing them? So um, I, th I think so. I believe it does. You know, my, my team and I have not exploited that yet, but I know a lot of light bulbs went off in the heads of other scientists when they heard this. And I think there's going to soon be uh, strategies to exploit this. And I, honestly, the, the young crop of scientists that are coming up today, I think are going to take these ideas and just run with it. But I think it was a major biological breakthrough that I think downstream may lead to a, uh, significant impacts uh, for our industry. I certainly hope so. Uh, the, the other question I was, I was, you know, kind of came up when you were talking about queen quality. So what do you see as the reason for the reduced queen quality from what we've seen in the past? So, yeah, that's a really tricky question as well. You know, a lot of people will say that what I mean by queen quality is that my queens aren't living as long or or they seem to give out of uh, semen within a short period of time. And I know your listeners may not be so familiar with this, but just briefly, you know, queen honeybees are really good for one season, but tend to peter off after that. So you might get two seasons out of them, but, but most of the industry will replace their queens yearly. You know, these days we're seeing evidence though that queens may live only six to 12 months. And so we get this high turnover and they also mate with multiple male honeybees and store the semen from all of those males and for the rest of their lives will fertilize eggs from that pool of semen. So some beekeepers are saying my queens aren't mating as well. And uh, you know, they're, 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 the, the amount of semen that's in them is not good or the semen's poor quality. And so they run out of semen quickly and they're failing. 
or you know there, there's these other traits that the work that the queens have that that just aren't productive and so there's a lot of theories about this if you ask beekeepers they'll often point at pesticides potentially they'll often point at nutrition stresses etc and i think it's just one of those areas of science that is growing at the moment that people are trying to figure out you know what does it mean to have poor quality queens and what are the most significant contributing factors to it i think that honestly i think that queen quality and nutrition are the two areas that are going to grow most uh, in research in the next decade so I don't want to go off on a complete tangent here, but um, when we talk about and think about queen breeding, a lot of that is done in the southern states. So a lot of us beekeepers farther north, there are some initiatives to breed bees in, in northern areas, but a lot of the replacement queens come from the south or from California or from Hawaii. And one thing that a lot of those places have in common is, um, you know, in Florida you have African bees, uh, which we don't have in the Midwest because they can't survive the winter. How much of a challenge is uh, the presence of African honeybees to queen breeders that are producing queens? You know, the, the, the beauty is, is that African bees have been in the state since the 90s. Not that that's a good thing, but, but, but it, it leads to my next point, which is uh, queen breeders have really developed really good management strategies to limit the impact of the feral African bee population on their um, queen production. Now, of course it can impact it. Like I said earlier, queens do not mate in the hive. If they did, they'd only have relatives available to them and inbreeding is bad also in the bee world. So they mate flying in the air with the drones or the male honeybees that will, will catch them. And these drones are coming from colonies all over the place. So if in a production system, if you're producing queens that are then going out and mating with male honeybees in the area, there's a reasonable probability that they'll mate with African honeybee drones that could lead to this defensive trait that we're all familiar with, with, with African honeybees. But queen uh, breeders really do a good job at managing the impact of feral African bee colonies on their operations. There's a lot of strategies that they can use to, to lessen that impact and make sure that the products that they're producing um, are, is, is, is good. Now, with that said, I mean, of course, there are, op there are times where these traits slip through the cracks and you know, a European derived honeybee might end up mating with an African derived honeybee and lead to a defensive bee. But you can usually spot that quickly and, and remedy it by requeening the colony. So continuing with the topic of queen breeding, you know, there's efforts out there to produce mite resistant bees or queens that have traits that make them handle the mites better. Do you have any comments on, on those efforts and, and where do we stand and, and what do you think the future holds? Yeah, that's a great, great thought. You know, for the benefit of the listeners, I think it, it's just interesting to tell our listeners that there's actually breeding of honeybees, right? When we think of breeding, we think about cattle or corn, whatever. You can, as you guys probably know, you, you can even instrumentally inseminate queen honeybees. You can collect semen from male honeybees and put that into queen honeybees. So there's a lot of selection tools that are at our disposal. And just like you mentioned, there's a handful of stocks or breeds or lines of honeybees that have been bred to be resistant to Varroa. Some of those, for example, the VSH line, which is Varroa sensitive hygiene. This is a line of honeybees that can detect Varroa uh, in certain areas in the colony and remove those. I know Purdue University produce what we call the ankle biter bees, where they will bite the varroa specifically around their legs, hence the ankle biter part. <laughs> we also have um, um, stocks of bees that are generally resistant to varroa. Russian honeybees is an example, a stock derived from honeybees taken out of Russia. 
and all of the data suggests for decades that these are really good bees that are quite resistant to varroa. The funny thing is though, is there's been remarkably slow um, adoption by our industry of these bees. And there's potentially a lot of reasons for this. I won't go into them, but the trick we have though, the real kicker with breeding bees is, as I've now said a couple times, queen honeybees mate outside the hive. So you can purchase a stock of bees, a queen that has been bred to have certain traits. You purchase it, you pay more money for her than you would an unselected or a queen. You put her in your colony. If she's going to only last six to 12 months, the colony is going to requeen itself. And that new queen, though she might carry the traits from her mother, she's going to go out and mate with unselected drones potentially. And, and very quickly you dilute the trait. So to me, there's tremendous promise for breeding bees, solving a lot of our issue, issues, but it's going to take industry-wide adoption and not just adoption here and there. And I think that's the message that we got to work on. We can produce productive, resistant bees, but everyone has to use them. So I think, I think that's where a huge push is going to be going in the future. That's interesting. I've never thought of selectively breeding bees, but it makes perfect sense. Um, well, that's the, if you think about it, if you think about it though, yeah. you know, when you, when you're breeding cattle, you can put the bull and the cow in the pasture and you can put a fence around those suckers and you know who's mating, but you can't do that with queen honeybees. And so there's this whole strategy about it, you know, ensuring that your queens end up with the male honeybees you want them to end up with. So they'll carry the traits you want. Interesting. Would you mind describing some of the work that you and your lab are currently working on? Yeah, I'd be more than happy to. So I work at the University of Florida. It's a land grant institution, which means we have three responsibilities, research, teaching, and extension. So I'll briefly go through all three of those. In research, we have three primary uh, categories of research. We do honeybee husbandry work. So that's all the research related to making beekeeping fun and keeping bees uh, uh, healthy. And so all of our disease and pest control research, all of our toxicology research, all of our nutrition research fits in that category. We also have a second line of research called honeybee ecology and conservation, where we work with wild populations of honeybees, specifically in um, South Africa, as well as uh, some other wild populations we've been doing some sampling of. And then our third area of research, we've looked at integrated crop pollination, where we look at the uh, contribution of honeybees, and about a decade ago as well, or you know, other bees, to the crop pollination systems that we have in Florida. So that's kind of our research. We, have, we normally have about 30 to 40 active research projects at any given time. Within instruction, we now, uh, colleagues and I teach multiple classes at the University of Florida. And in fact, I think within a year or two, there will be more honeybee classes taught at the University of Florida than anywhere else on planet Earth. We essentially have a beekeeping 101 and a 102 courses. So those are two courses. We have a practical beekeeping. Uh, this fall, we're going to offer honeybee biology. Very soon, we'll be doing a commercial beekeeping internship. We've ta we're talking about offering a honeybee pest and disease course. And we do study abroad courses that are starting next year on Asian apiculture in Thailand. So by the time the dust settles in the next five years, there'll be somewhere in the neighborhood of six to eight different courses that you can take at the University of Florida on honeybees and most of these will be offered fully online, meaning students from other universities can take them and transfer the credits. 
I was going to ask you about that because, you know, most universities don't offer courses like that, at least not that many. Mm -hmm. And so that's great if they're available. Well, it's funny because you're just what you said. Most universities, if they offer a honeybee course, will only offer one. It's that general beekeeping, that gee whiz honeybees course. But we decided to go deeper because we, it's just, just FYI, we offer our general beekeeping course every semester, spring, summer, and fall, and average nearly 200 students in it each time. So that just emphasized the demand for beekeeping courses. And so we're rolling out the courses principally through a colleague of mine at the University of Florida, Dr. Cameron Jack. So we, we hope to expand our instructional offering. And like I said, most of these courses are online. And even if you're not in college, you can take these courses for co college credit. So that's, that's a really impressive way of getting information out through our instructional programs. And then finally, extension. Extension is basically working with beekeepers to help you know, them keep bees better and, and make beekeeping more sustainable. We do a lot. We offer bee colleges here at the University of Florida. In fact, because of the, the virus that's coming up for the first time ever this August, August 2020, we're gonna be offering every Saturday this August our virtual bee college. We have a master beekeeper program, which is entirely online, probably the most comprehensive of its type on planet earth by the time we're done. We've got informational documents, videos. I travel around the country talking. I travel around the world giving lectures to bee groups. I answer emails. We, we do our own podcast, Two Bees in a Podcast, which you can find on our website, ufhoneybee.com. We just provide lots of information through our instructional program. So we try our best to hit all three missions of the land grant, research, teaching, and extension. We do our best to make sure we're getting B knowledge out through all three of those avenues. If there's someone that's interested in picking up some of these classes that you offer, how would they go about finding them? Uh, the, a really great way to do that is to go to our lab website, which is UF for University of Florida, ufhoneybee.com, ufhoneybee.com. The second way you can do that is follow us on our social media accounts. We have very active social media accounts, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you can find us at UF Honeybee Lab, at UF Honeybee Lab. So if you go through those two avenues, you'll find our podcast, our instructional programs, our master beekeeper program, our blog. You'll find out about our research, everything that uh, we, we announce about ourselves will be offered either through our website or through our social media accounts. And, th and there's a lot of a wealth of information there for, for anyone interested in bees and beekeeping. I'm really impressed that uh, all the outreach that you are doing and, uh, you know, it's an important work that you're doing. So I personally appreciate it. Well, um, I have one follow-up final question for you here. Um, you know, and maybe it's a longer question than just a simple thing, but what do you see as the future of beekeeping? Where, where is this industry headed? Is it, you know, you talk to some people and you hear a doom and gloom and you, you know, you sound very optimistic about solving some of these challenges that we're facing. Uh, what are your thoughts on the future and, and where we're going? So I am absolutely an eternal optimist. I've, I've been keeping bees for 30 years myself now and I and I feel like I've learned what it takes to keep bees alive and a lot of beekeepers feel the same way as well you know a lot of these high loss rates are are, are not universal to every beekeeper and, and the other thing working in academia you know gives me additional insight in, into the future of bees because the tools the technology and the individuals necessary to solve our problems are in the pipeline 
right now. I'm incredibly impressed at our students, you know, not just our students at University of Florida, students I see at conferences. These guys and girls from all walks of life, all ethnicities, everywhere around the world are incredibly intelligent. They have a wealth of resources at their fingertips, and we are going to address these problems. It may take some time. It may take some fussing and fighting and heartache, but we're going to address these problems. That's what humans do. We solve problems, and I think we're going to address it. Um, I always tell people if bees have been able to survive us for 6,000 years, they're, they're going to be able to, uh, to, to survive us longer. <laughs> Perfect. Well, on that note, um, Jamie, we really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to have a discussion with us today and uh, wish you all the best. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. And, and Jamie, you mentioned a couple of ways that people can follow you, your, your two bees in a pod podcast and checking out Twitter and looking at your lab online. Also for the listeners out there, uh, Jamie is also the person who answers questions for the classroom in the American Bee Journal. And I believe that is currently free online right now, the American Bee Journal, you know, while this COVID outbreak is going on. Yeah, that may be the case. Yep. I really enjoy, you know, it's funny because at the end of our podcast and in bee culture and just people emailing me, I answer questions about bees. So we get lots and lots of questions about bees, but it's our pleasure to do that at University of Florida. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.